All right, everyone, I'm going to go ahead and pray. <clears throat> I'm going to go ahead and pray, and then we'll dive into our time of teaching. Um, Father, thank you for this morning. Um, thank you for your consistent love towards us. Um, there's so much happening in so many of our lives, uh, in our families, in our friend groups, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our broader culture, in this Super Bowl chaos, the political chaos, and just the constant um, bids for our attention, the constant looking towards, looking away, looking away, looking towards. Would you help us focus and recenter our lives on you and your purposes for us this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. So if you guys are new, my name is Andy. I'm one of the pastors here at Restored. And if you are new, we are in the middle of a series called A Day in the Life. And A Day in the Life essentially is looking at a day in the life of Jesus. Um, and, 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 we're, and we're doing that by looking at one chapter of the Bible. Often we'll work through an entire book of the Bible. Uh, but for this series, we're doing like a nine-part series through one chapter of the Bible, Mark 1, which, which mostly takes place in one day of the life of Jesus. And so it's getting a picture of what his life was like. And the goal of that as um, followers of Jesus is to, is to see what we can glean from how Jesus approached different aspects of his life. And so a few weeks ago, um, Grant Clark looked at this idea that Jesus was baptized and so said, okay, if Jesus was baptized, what does that mean for us? Um, a few weeks back, I looked at this idea of temptation and how Jesus faced temptation and what that means for us. And, and then last week, uh, Grant looked at, the, the, at these ideas of repentance and kingdom and what that means for us. And today, what I want to talk about is this idea of discipleship. Um, discipleship. And so we're going to be starting in Mark chapter 1. Uh, we'll be picking up in verse 16 through 20. Um, I'm going to go ahead and read that, and then we will dive in. So Mark chapter 1, uh, verse 16 says, As he passed along the Sea of Galilee, this is Jesus, he saw Simon and Andrew, Simon's brother casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Follow me, Jesus told them, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat putting their nets in order. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boats with the hired men and followed him. And so what Jesus is inviting them into is this idea of discipleship. And to help us think through this idea of discipleship, um, I have a few questions I want to answer today. Uh, number one is, what is a disciple? Number two, what keeps us from growing as disciples? Number three, what helps us move forward as disciples? And I want to say with number two and number three, there's a lot that can be said about both of those. Um, I'm not going to say everything that could be said, if that makes sense. So, so it's, it's not going to be less than what I describe, but it could be more than that. Um, but, but here's what I want to start, where I want to start is, is, number one, what is a disciple? Uh, the, the Greek word for disciple is methetes, and it just means apprentice or student. And the definition I'm going to use today um, is, is, is an Andy Rogers quote. Uh, and so a disciple, I'm defining it as an apprentice or learner who is progressively learning to believe what their teacher believes and live as their teacher lived, who will then teach it to others. Um, now, what you need to know is that, that this idea of discipleship was not unique to Jesus as Messiah. Uh, this was something, this was a term used for rabbis and philosophers in the ancient world. And honestly, we still have, an, we, we still have some context for this. When you think about things like apprenticeships in the, the, uh, the trade industries, or um, being under supervision as a counselor, or um, uh, residencies in, in the medical fields, um, we have this idea of, of studying under someone to learn to do what they do. Now, now the thing, though, is, is with rabbis in the first century world, it wasn't just learning to do what they do, but actually trying to become who they were and believe what they believe. So you're taking on both teaching and a way of life. Matter of fact, they would call that their yoke. You guys remember that, Jesus? Take your yoke upon you. And so rabbis, uh, it was very common in the ancient world um, for rabbis and philosophers to have disciples, someone who was seeking to become like the rabbi or teacher, believing what they believe, behaving how they behaved, and doing what they did. Matter of fact, in ancient Israel, rabbis were the most respected profession. Uh, they were wealthy. Uh, they often um, had big families, beautiful wives, large houses, and they would pack out areas when they came to town to preach. 
might sound kind of funny, but they were like the celebrities of their day. Uh, They're spiritual leaders in a, in a, in a context where, where spirituality was embedded into the very fabric of culture, and they had a ton of political power, and everyone wanted to um, engage with them, hear from them, be chosen by them. Uh, every male wanted to be a rabbi, and every mother wanted her son to be a rabbi. Um, if you think about the way, uh, in America, especially in America and in, and in Europe, um, upper-class families, wealthy families, will often do anything to get their kids into Ivy League schools or into a school like Stanford or UCLA. Um, this is the energy that people put into getting with a top rabbi. And so your kids would prepare, and your goal would be to be accepted by a top rabbi. Um, if you think about, uh, I don't know if you guys know this, right now in America, um, the club sports industry makes $17 billion a year. Now, you might be like, oh, man, that's a lot of money, but, but other industries make more money. Uh, yeah, um, the NBA makes about $10 billion a year. And Major League Baseball makes a little under $11 billion a year. So, so Major League Baseball and the NBA combined are barely scraping by the numbers that club sports are doing. And club sports are built on this idea. Um, they, they are promising scholarships. And, they're promising, and, and the idea, it, it's built on anxiety and fear. Your kid's going to fall behind if you don't jump into the right team with the right trainer and go to the right clinics and the right camps. Because if you don't do that, your child may not make it onto a Division three basketball team that you'll pay for out of pocket, right? They don't promise that. They promise scholarships. And the irony is um, the scholarships are usually worth less than the hundreds to thousands of dollars a month that are paid to be on the team over five to six years. You go, oh, you could have just set money aside for college uh, and had a way better relationship with your kids. <laughs> but the idea, it's built on the fear that your child is falling behind. I mean, this even starts with really prestigious uh, colleges. It starts at a really young age with prestigious kindergartens. Uh, in, in wealthier parts of America. It's like you got to give them the right kindergarten to get them to the right primary school, to get them to the right high school, to get them into the right college. And this would have been um, very similar to the energy for a century Palestinian. You know, Jewish parents would have brought to uh, the table when it came to um, uh, their kids becoming disciples of rabbis one day. Um, there's a guy named uh, Ray Vanderland, and he's a, um, a, a scholar on Judaism and first century Second Temple Judaism. And he says that Jewish, edu Jewish education uh, at the time of Jesus was made up of three primary sections. Uh, it was Bet Safar, Bet Talmud, and Bet Midrash. Uh, Bet Safar is from the ages of 5 to 10, and it's a time uh, taught in the synagogue by the rabbi. And during this time, good Jewish boys memorized the entire Torah, okay? So by the age of 10, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy in Hebrew, all right? Um, and then at, at the end of uh, Bet Safar, um, they would make cuts, essentially. It's like, hey, you're not going to be moving on to the next level, right? You're not going to Hollywood, American Idol style. Uh, the rabbis would go, hey, you're a good kid. You know the Torah. Uh, keep it moving, though. Um, you know, there's always uh, your kids, uh, honestly. Uh, then there was the uh, Bet Talmud, uh, progressing on from Bet Safar. It continues from the age of 10 to 14. During this time, the student would continue their memorization of the Psalms, the prophets, and the rest of the Hebrew scriptures by the age of 14. Again, it wasn't uncommon in that day for a good Jewish boy to have the entire Old Testament memorized by the age of 15 or 16. Uh, the student would also, during this time, begin to learn the art of questions and answers. Uh, and again, you see this with Jesus, where he answers questions with questions. That was a very common way rabbis would debate uh, at the time. And so you'd kind of look for, like, brilliance. Not just that they'd have the right answer, but, but an approach to, 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 to asking a question and the logic they would use. And then lastly is Bet Midrash, uh, which, by the way, there's cuts again here, uh, right? There's a semifinal uh, before you move to the, the Super Bowl, I guess, uh, of... Um, of Bet Midrash. Um, by the way, is anyone feeling with the Super Bowl like you're aged a little bit? Uh, Usher doing the halftime show, blowing my mind. Uh, I know Ethan's excited about it. I remember back in the day, it was like, why is this person doing the halftime show? Like, who wants to see Aerosmith? <laughs> and now Clive's asking, who wants to see Usher? And I said, a lot of beautiful people that feel young. So I think when the Super Bowl acts tip to your, uh, your like high school era, it's, it's happening. Anyways, Bet Midrash, age of 14 and up, um, 
uh, again, you, you, you'd go through that period, and then you would actually, at the end of that, again, they'd make some cuts, uh, and, and then you would move, uh, again, in Bet Midrash, you're not just memorizing the scripture or, or, or exhibiting um, the ability to ask good questions and use logic. Um, at this point, you're, you're working through how to apply the law or the Torah in a way that's consistent with the rabbi without the rabbi being there before you even apply to work with the rabbi. And so at the age of 14, the best of the best, the Harvard and Yale of the Jewish boys would take another step. And it was kind of like early admissions. They would just reach out. They would, they would, they would um, apply to their rabbi. Uh, they would ask the rabbi, can I follow you? Can I be your disciple? That word, can I be your disciple? And the rabbi would do kind of like a pretty intense oral exam, and they would work through it. And, um, and, and sometimes they would say, hey, you know what? You're accepted. You can come follow me. And by the way, you know what they would do? They would move from home. In their teen years, they'd move from home, and they would travel around with the rabbi as he taught different places. This isn't unique to Jesus either. Isn't that fascinating? Um, now, now at the end of this, there's always the possibility the rabbi might decide while testing them, um, you're not Harvard, Yale, Gamma Meal material. Uh, you're, you're not ready to follow a rabbi of my caliber. And he'd say, hey, you know, obviously you know the scriptures, but you don't have what it takes to, to be just like me. So, uh, you know, go make babies and pray that they would become rabbis. That's what they would say. That was their rejection letter. We regret to inform you, uh, Gamaliel cannot receive you as a rabbinical disciple, but... Get married, make babies, and pray that one day they could make it into the program. And so again, apprentice or learner is someone who's progressively learning to believe what their teacher believes and live as if their teacher lived, who will then teach it to others. Um, discipleship looks different in different contexts uh, for disciples of Jesus, but the goal is similar. We want to... Um, learn, uh, we want to believe what Jesus believed, we want to become um, like him, and we want to do the things that he did. Um, a friend of the program, Jeff Vanderstelt, uh, a leader that we love, he writes this, he says, in his culture, Jesus called Simon and Andrew, two fishermen, to become his disciples who make disciples in a way that made sense in their context. I will send you out to fish for people. By the way, that's really important. They were fishermen doing their thing. We don't need to, like, use fisher of men language to be, like, super faithful. Like, he's contextually meeting them where they're at in their job. Does that make sense? Uh, that being said, we'll keep it moving. Um, you will need to do the same in your context. That doesn't mean there isn't some kind of template or consistent standard for how we define a disciple. As each of us thinks about clearly defining what a disciple is and how one is made in our context, we want Jesus' words to guide how we develop um, our definition and process. We can discern from these verses and many other verses as well three key parts to the definition of a disciple. The definition must be one, relational, two, transformational, and three, commissional. Okay? Uh, so, a big question I have is, is what are the goals of a disciple? What are the goals of a disciple? And, and, and three things you can kind of come back to, again, utilizing Jeff Vanderselt's framework. Uh, I'm going to say this. Uh, the goals of a disciple are to abide in Jesus' love, which is the relational aspect of discipleship. We have to be attached to God. We have to have a relationship to God through Jesus. Number two, um, we need to embody Jesus' character. That's the transformational part. Jeff got to in that definition or that framework. We need to embody Jesus' character. We actually have to become different kinds of people. If you look the same 40 years from now, you're not going to look the same physically, just spoiler alert, okay? But if you're, um, the way that you show up in relationships, the way that you, the way that you deal with sin in your life, the way that you um, uh, deal with anxiety or, or anger or whatever it is, if none of that's moved an inch in 40 years, that's not good. Um, if you have no interest in obeying Jesus' teaching, right, you qualify everything to death. Forgiveness can't mean forgiveness. It's complicated. It is complicated, but it's also a decision you make, right? You know, sexual purity, purity culture, we can't, yeah, yeah, that's stuff to work through, but like sexual purity is still a real category in the scriptures. Does that make sense? Loving your enemy, it can't mean like your enemy enemy, right? Like it can't mean like someone who actually hurt you. No, no, he wrote in a context where they experienced, um, horrific things at the hands of other people, and he called them to love their enemies. So you actually are transformed to be the kind of person who obeys Jesus' teaching. 
And then lastly, we want to imitate Jesus's practices. This is the commissional part. We want to do the things Jesus did. As we engage with the world, we want to do the things Jesus did when he engaged with the world. And again, it's so interesting because this would have been true of the first century disciples of other rabbis. They would have been in constant relationship with the rabbi traveling with them. Two, they would have been transformed in their mind and behavior. And then three, they would have been commissioned by their rabbis to teach others that same yoke when the time had come. They'd send them out. So that's what discipleship is. But number two, what keeps us from growing in our discipleship to Jesus? Um, I I think there's two things. Uh, One is misunderstanding the call and misunderstanding how formation works. The first one's misunderstanding uh, the call. A- again, it's this, this reality that when Jesus calls them, they drop their nets. I want you to catch that. He doesn't go, hey, man, take six months. Um, find a way for someone else to lead the business while you're gone. Um, maintain a consistent fishing revenue stream. Uh, hey, don't, don't leave your dad. He's going to get mad. Uh, d- right? D- does that make sense? Like he doesn't, he doesn't do all that. He goes, hey, you've got to leave something behind to be a disciple. Um, the way that we talk about following Jesus in America, we often don't include the fact that to follow Jesus is to obey him, is to, is to leave something behind. Does that make sense? If, if you don't leave anything behind, if you, if you, if you think you're going to bring in all of your past life into your faith and none of it has to move, you're not really following Jesus. You just go to church on Sunday every third week or whatever, maybe every four weeks. But everything else is the same. Does that make sense? He doesn't want to just reorient your Sunday not having brunch as early as you'd like it to. He wants to change your life. And so, like, if your politics haven't changed an inch, I'm not talking about which party, an inch since you became a follower of Jesus, I wonder if you've become a follower of Jesus. If your views of how you interact with other people who are different to you has not changed since you started following Jesus, I would wonder, are you really following Jesus? If the way that you handle money has not changed at all since you started following Jesus, I'd be curious if you're actually following Jesus. Does that make sense? Like there's things we hang on to, identities and narratives and beliefs and ideology. And, we, and again, so often we try to make Jesus fit into that where disciples leave that behind to follow Jesus. So we misunderstand the call. And oftentimes, by the way, I think there is a little bit of a misunderstanding. Um, There's two books that really helped me prepare for today's sermon, if you want to read more on this. The first one's called Conversion and Discipleship by Bill Hull, if you want to write that down. Conversion and Discipleship by Bill Hull. Um, And another one is uh, Practicing the Way by John Mark Comer, uh, two helpful resources. Um, uh, But John Mark Comer says this. He says, the word Christian is used only three times in the New Testament. To put that in perspective, the word disciple, in Mathetes, is used 269 times. The thing is, the label Christian is one Jesus never used. He said, whoever wants to be my disciple, not whoever wants to put your hand up to become a Christian. Continues, he says, around 63% of Americans self-identify as Christians, though this number continues to decline. Trying to measure, measure a person's level of spirituality is tricky But quite a few surveys put the number of Americans who are following Jesus at around 4%. And you get into, like, actually doing the stuff Jesus said. So Christians, 63%. Apprentices, 4%. He adds, my Catholic friends distinguish between Catholics and practicing Catholics. The former is more of a cultural or ethnic category, akin to being from Italy or, like, Mexico City or Boston. And the latter is a measure of spiritual devotion. Could it be time for Protestants to lovingly delineate between Christians and practicing Christians? Isn't that crazy? So here's the idea. A lot of people will self-identify as a follower of Jesus, but they don't follow Jesus. Um, and, and I was thinking about this the other day. I mean, you can self-identify, and again, I guess culturally, you can self-identify as a ton of stuff now. But uh, I'll just say, um, can you imagine if someone said, man, I self-identify... Uh, I self-identify as a football player, right? And, and you go, oh, cool, man. What does that mean? It's like, man, I'm just, I'm a football player. I like football. I watch games a lot. Uh, and you're like, cool. Like, when do you play? Well, I don't, I don't play. I mean, I don't play, I don't play in the game. Oh, do you, do you practice though? Well, I don't practice. Do you, do you have gear? I, I don't have gear. 
have you ever do you have a co I don't have a coach so how are you a, a football player well I just my family were, were football players and I like to think of my does that make sense you go come on man like if you're not practicing and actually doing this stuff like you're not actually a disciple and by the way that's not even a, a judgmental cat it's not even a judgmental thing it's just going hey I, I just don't think the way Jesus defines what football is uh, I don't think you're doing that does that make sense so it's like hey um, I like to think of myself as being on that team it's like well that coach defines being on that team as these things and you're not them no big deal you're just not on that team uh, does that make sense um now you might be able to, to, to join that team someday uh, and again Jesus invites you onto the team for the record he wants you to be on the team he died to make space for you to be on the team and to develop you, but you have to actually play. You have to actually seek to obey Jesus. Uh, New Testament scholar Gordon Fee says, in the long run, only disciples are converts. Only disciples are converts. So that isn't like to become a Christian convert and then live however you want to live. It's, it's, it's to, to become someone who follows Jesus. Um, so we misunderstand this idea that we're called to discipleship if we're called to Jesus. Um, but the second thing is, is, is we, we misunderstand formation. Um, here's the thing you need to know is that everyone in this room, uh, Grant and I are in a, um, a spiritual direction program, this uh, certificate program thing. And one of the things that we talk about is emotional and spiritual formation, uh, development. And, uh, and, and again, the people that lead it are both, they're spiritual directors and psychologists. And one of the things that they do is they work through how people develop, right? And the reality is, is all of us are being formed or developed. The question isn't, are you being developed? It's who's developing you? Um, what are your most shaping influences? What are your core messages? And how are you living? But everyone has that. You might need to do an audit to figure out what those um, voices are and what those messages to you are and how they're calling you to live, but they're there. Um, we're all being formed. Again, uh, John Mark Comer here says, spiritual formation is not optional. Every thought you think Every emotion you let shape your behavior, every attitude you let rest in your body, every decision you make, every word you speak, every relationship you enter into, the habits that make up your days, whether or not you have social media, if you do, how you use it, how you respond to pain and suffering, how you handle failure or success, all these things and more are forming us into a particular shape. Stasis is not on the menu we are being either transformed into the love and beauty of Jesus or malformed by the entropy of sin and death. We're not all following the same path. Case in point, he says, elderly people. <laughs> it's a funny way to start. He says this, he says, most people over the age of 80 are either the best or the worst people you know. Isn't that interesting? He says, hear me, I do not mean this in an ageist way, just the opposite, in fact. Most 20-somethings I know are just kind of mid, as my teenage kids would say. They aren't saints or potential terrorists. They're just normal. This isn't true of most elderly people I know. Run through your mental Rolodex of people past 80. Most of them are either the most gracious, happy, grateful, patient, loving, self-giving people you know, happy to be alive and sitting in the room with you, or they are the most bitter, manipulative, spiteful people you know, oozing emotional poison into their family lines and reveling in others' pain. Sure, some are in the middle of the bell curve, but almost all are, are pretty much on one side or the other. That's because, this is the point, it's not about age, it's, it's, he says that's because they've spent almost a century becoming a person, being formed into something through some strange, invisible chemical reaction of habits, mindsets, chosen attitudes, life circumstances, suffering, successes, failures, they've become who they are. This is spiritual formation. This is discipleship. And so we often misunderstand how, what formation is and how it happens. Uh, a couple different things uh, to key in on here is that um, Discipleship or formation happen, um, again, no matter what. How do they happen? Um, in three core ways. Uh, th the first is the narratives we believe. So you're formed by the narratives you believe, the ideas you cling to. I preached on thoughts a couple months ago, um, that our thoughts impact our emotions that impact our behavior, which impacts our habits in our life. Um, uh, your life is moving in the direction of your strongest thoughts. So if you believe things like you can't trust people, no one will ever love the real you. You'll never succeed. 
God doesn't hear your prayers. God doesn't care about you. You're never going to make a difference. You're never going to amount to anything. You'll always just be a victim. You'll never actually become like Jesus. You're going to be formed into a specific type of person if you believe those things. The second core area is the, is the habits we practice. Again, your life is made up of days, and your days are made up of hours, and your hours are made up of minutes, and those minutes are made up of your habits. What's on your schedule? Why is it there? How do you engage it? Habits often, by the way, are, are where our thoughts are reinforced. Uh, Comer adds here, he says, um, whatever we abide in will determine the fruit of our lives for good or for ill. If we are rooted in the infinite scroll of social media, it will form us, likely into people who are angry, anxious, arrogant, simplistic, or distracted. If we are rooted in the endless cues of our streaming platforms of choice, they will form us too, likely into people who are lustful, restless, and bored, never present to what is in front of them. If we are rooted in the pursuit of hedonism, another drink, another toke, or another hookup to take the edge off the pain and let us find a moment's peace, that will form us as well. Likely into people who are compulsive, addicted, and running from our pain and simultaneously our healing. Insert examples ad nauseum. But if we are rooted in the inner life of God, that will also form us. It will slowly grow the fruit of the spirit in our life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, close quote. And so our habits, what we do daily, weekly, monthly, um, that shapes you. And then the last one is our relationships. Our relationships. Um, uh, in Proverbs, it says, bad company corrupts character. Now, again, I think we know that's true, especially when you think through, like, pre-adolescence and adolescence. Um, I grew up um, in a family that was super disconnected. My dad was not in the picture a lot for, for quite a while. Um, my mom was very overwhelmed with life and I basically grew up at other people's houses and the house I, I mostly grew up at, um, was my friend Sergio's house and, um, and his, his older brother Ramon was like the guy I wanted to be like, um, big problem with that. Uh, Ramon was like a legit drug dealer. Okay. Uh, and so I spent a lot of time being shaped uh, by him. And not only was he a, uh, a drug dealer, he also, um, uh, some would say this is the worst part, but, but I think it's okay. He also was a rapper. Uh, and, uh, and it was kind of unique because we were in South San Diego. We're right on the border. Um, he was Mexican. We we're on the border. Um, and he was super into East Coast hip hop. Okay. So it was, it was just, it was, mo it was pretty much all Mexican kids and me. Um, little Wedito, I told you guys before. Uh, they called me Tomate because I turned red. Um, but it was us. And, um, and they had turntables, and they had a mixer, and they had a gang of records. And we, um, we got really into East Coast hip-hop. Um, I mean, we loved, uh, again, I'm not telling you to do a list of this right now, but we loved, like, Wu-Tang, Mob Deep. We used, like, um, Mob, De Mob Deep is a uh, <laughs> hip-hop group from Queens uh, from the 90s. Uh, if you've seen the movie 8 Mile, the beat that he raps over over and over again is their beat. Not, they're, they're legit East Coast gangster rap, all right? I'm not endorsing them. But they had their own, like, slang. They called it thun language. Um, and uh, and so be like, what up, thun? And so that's how we talk to each other as 10-year-olds in South San Diego, uh, like grown men in the Queensbridge Projects in Queens, New York, where we had never been before, all right? Um, we would use, we, yeah, we'd talk like Raekwon and, and Wu-Tang. Like, we would use slang. And my, my point is, is being around those people, we wanted to be like them. Now, they were watching videos and listening to records and going to shows, like, taking that stuff on. And then we were just looking at them, like, looking at Omar and Ramon and these guys going, man, we want to be like these guys. And, and, and again, to this day, I kind of, like, I feel like East Coast hip-hop is, like, a part of my culture in a way that doesn't really make sense to people. Um, but it's there, you know. Um, like, you West Coast, I'm, like, big East Coast guy. Why? Oh, just, you know. Again, it's the people I hung out with. So you'll become like the people you spend time with. You will say what they say. You'll dress like they dress. You'll value what they value. It starts with your family of work. By the way, God's designed us that way. That's not bad. It's supposed to start with our caregivers and our family of origin, and it moves into friend groups and then, you know, today's social media and all that stuff. But, but who are the people that speak in the most, that you're with the most? The people you spend the most time with will influence you the most over time. 
which leads to um, how we actually grow. Uh, there's a guy named James Brian Smith you guys are familiar with. We've used his books uh, several times in our summer school classes. Uh, and he has this thing uh, called the Spiritual Formation Triangle, which uh, Dallas Willard technically came up with. He studied, he was a disciple of Dallas Willard. Uh, he, he sat under him for about four years. And, uh, and, and so what I want you to catch is, is these are all counter formational measures to the formation I just described, right? So the beliefs you have, uh, James Bryan S- Smith says we need to adopt the narratives of Jesus. So think biblical truth, gospel truth. You're going to get that hopefully through sermons. You're going to get that through meditating on scripture. You're going to get that through studying the Bible. You're going to get that through a good Christian counselor that helps you think through narratives that are deeply embedded, maybe via trauma or your family of origin that, that don't align with the truth of God's word and just the truth of reality. So, so you want to adopt the narratives of Jesus about, your, about who God is, about what your identity is, about what your purpose is. That's part of the work of discipleship. Um, the other thing that we need are, he calls them soul training, spiritual disciplines. We've called them intimacy building practices historically, um, which sounds like something a sex therapist would assign, but we met with God. Uh, thinking about it full circle now, it's kind of funny. Um, but, but basically, new habits, okay? New habits. So if habits shape you, you know, if you wake up and you check your email on social media for the first 30 minutes of the day and you're, you're stressed out, frat, you know, frantic and not present, um, instead, you know, what if you took 15 minutes a day to just read some scripture and pray through a few questions about your, your inner world, your emotional space, whatever it is. Grant, uh, next week, I think in two weeks, Grant's going to give us two really helpful prayer exercises you can use every day that don't take up a lot of time but keep you connected to the presence of Jesus. Some of you guys, you let Donald Trump dictate how you live your day. You hate Donald Trump, and you just you keep seeing what he says, and it makes you so mad, and you live your day. It's like, why are you letting Donald Trump speak in more than the Father? <laughs> why are you letting some crazy, progressive, political person that makes you mad on the other side speak into you more than the Father? Does that make sense? Like, why are we letting people shape us who we shouldn't want to be like them? Um, and, and so, again... That'd be an example. Another, another example would be if you're realizing, man, I have a, a lot of these addictive tendencies. Um, it, it's working at some disciplines to change that. Uh, I talked about it a few weeks ago, temptation, you know, abstaining from things, fasting from things, keeping things um, out of reach. Uh, and then lastly is um, church community, which again is relationships. So again, and I'm not saying you can only be friends with people in church, uh, but I do think they need to be uh, like our church, but they need to be like legit followers of Jesus, like your closest friends. Um, if, if they're going to help you become like Jesus, if, again, if your, your friends shape you, you're going to want some people who love Jesus to help you grow and become like Jesus. That's why we think it's so important, like, you marry another follower of Jesus. Because either your relationship with Jesus will take a hit, or your relationship with them will take a hit. Um, and so you want people, um, your closest relationships, to be people helping you follow Jesus. Does that make sense? And again, that's what we hope happens with things like GCs and, and other contexts. Um, and so, we, so that's how formation works. Now, my last point is this, is what helps us move forward as disciples of Jesus? What helps us move forward as disciples of Jesus? How are you guys doing, by the way? Um, do you have 13 minutes in you, or do you have five? Oh, okay. All right. We'll see. All right. All right, so uh, what helps move forward as disciples of Jesus? I have three con- uh, concepts. One is very short. Don't freak out. One's very short, and the other two close us out. Um, two are really short, actually. One's uh, a little bit longer. Uh, the first one is this. We have to confess who our true rabbi is. Who's our true rabbi? No, no, I'm saying, like, uh, besides Jesus, sorry. Like, like if you're going to move forward, um, that's great. That's where we want to land. But if it isn't, we need to be honest about who that true rabbi is. Again, it could be a real person. It could be a real person you know, or it could be, you know, um, so-and-so you look up to, uh, a celebrity, a political figure, uh, whoever, musician, whatever. Who are you modeling your life after? Who do you want to be like? When you make the major decisions of your life, whose voice do you consult, either a real person or what you think they would do? Right. Is, it a, is it an influencer? Again, it's a political figure. Is it a celebrity? Is it a just person? You know, um, is it a really unhealthy family member that you can't admit is unhealthy because you're your own stuff and you, you look to them and it's not good? But who... Um, Whose teaching do you really follow, essentially? Uh, number two, this is going to be our longest uh, point. Um, the, the third one's going to be short. Uh, but we need to name where our current discipleship location is. 
We need to name where our current discipleship location is. Now, if you've known me for a while, you know I'm very bad at tech things. Uh, I'm very analog. I'm an elder millennial. Uh, I'm very bad. Ask Clive. I text with Clive now. He's got a phone, and like I don't know half the stuff he's saying. I just know I'm sus, and my riz is whack. Um, so, uh, right? I don't know. Uh, so, so that's that's reality. Um, uh, I, it's, I'm not good at formatting things. I'm terrible at formatting things. Uh, I also don't really know how to make slides. So, with the help of software, uh, I was able to make this slide that you're going to see. Um, so I'm pretty proud of it. I know. Get ready. Um, I wanted it to be a little bit different. Um, but these are stages of discipleship. And here's the thing you need to know. Um, uh, again, um, uh, Brad Syrian, uh, one of my best friends, Restored LA, um, he worked really hard last year at creating a pathway for people. One of the things that he started to really hit him was, like, people don't know where they're at in their journey. And they just go, oh, I'm a Christian. And then I just, I just, I don't know where I'm at. And he said, it's actually helpful to know that there are stages to maturity. And we're all, because then you know what, what's, what's needed next for your growth. Does that make sense? Um, and, and a lot of us, we, we don't know where we are. So some of us need to be challenged to move into the next phase. And some of us need to be encouraged. Hey, you've grown more than you, you, you realize. Which, by the way, for a lot of us, this is a 60, 40, 50, 60, 80 year journey. So again, you, you don't move through these too quickly. But some of you guys, it's like, hey, it's time to grow more. And for some of us, it's time to, uh, to realize, oh man, I, I can... I can, I, can, I, can, I can show up differently. Um, so Brad, Brad Sarian says this, friend of the program, says, the New Testament does not shy away from the reality that there are differences in the maturity of believers. Some followers of Jesus are further along in their journey while others are just beginning. And rather than this being a source of irritation or envy, it should be a cause of joy because it means there are Christians around you who can genuinely help you grow. Um, it's, he says, this is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, imitate me as I also imitate Christ. Paul is saying to the church, I am more mature than you are, so follow me as I pursue Jesus. Now, a lot of us, we have like a false humility. We can't say stuff like that. You can't. He doesn't say, follow me, I am Christ. He says, follow me as I follow Christ in a way that you're not currently following him. Uh, one of the clearest places we see different stages of discipleship and maturity is in 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, where John writes this. He says, I am writing to you, little children, since your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I am writing to you, fathers, because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have conquered the evil one. In this passage, we see John addre addressing Christians, but acknowledging that they are in different stages spiritually children, um, young adults, and parents. While the three theological realities that John states are true of all believers, John felt it necessary to give a specific application to each stage, excuse me, of spiritual maturity. Commenting on this passage, New Testament scholar Samuel Negewa writes, concerning the classification into children, fathers, and young men, the majority of scholars view this to be on classification on their stage and Christian experience. J.T. English in his book, Deep Discipleship, explains the importance of understanding the growth path for believers. He writes, the author of Hebrews highlights the importance of sequence when he says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. He also later goes on to say, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. One of the great tragedies in discipleship is being an infant when you should be an adult, a student when you should be a teacher. These passages are not suggesting that being a student, infant, or drinking milk is a bad thing, but that staying there is. Disciples eventually are meant to move from milk to meat, from student to teacher, from child to adult. All of us are eventually called to leave the foundations of discipleship and press forward into being mature disciples of Christ, all through the power of the Holy Spirit in the context of the local church. And so to move forward, we have to be honest about where we are. It's true with addiction. You got to admit you have a problem before you can get help. It's true of getting treated medically. You have to admit something hurts to, to go get care. Uh, it's true of uh, directions, right? Like for, for, for maps to work. You got to have a blue or a red dot, depending on your map, where you're starting to figure out the steps on where you need to go. And it's true of our discipleship journeys. 
Like we gotta be, we gotta be honest about this, the stage that we're in. And so to move through this, um, the first stage is spiritually dead. Um, it's pretty thug life. I wanted a, a tombstone, but it's a pretty rock and roll, pretty Adam Jones, uh, a skull, um, very punk rock. Um, and, uh, it's not spiritually dead. And that's someone who is not following Jesus. They don't know. And then, again, that's Ephesians two language. If that's offensive, they're spiritually dead. Like they, they, they aren't aware of the spiritual realities of the scriptures and of the gospel. Um, again, they, they're darkened in their minds. Um, scripture says, and by the way, it says that all of us were like that. It's not like you're better than anyone. Uh, God opens your eyes, uh, which moves you to, um, spiritual infants, uh, where again, you're, you're born again into the family of God. Now I'll read these descriptions, uh, uh quickly, but, but as I read these, I want you to consider where you might be. All right. Um, so the first one is, is, is spiritual infant. Um, uh, this is someone who's just believed in Jesus, but aren't totally, aren't fully sure what that means. Uh, common belief and experiences that they have. Uh, they experience a hunger for God and a discontentment with what life is. Uh, they feel conviction over sin they had previously been comfortable with, but they still have a lot of pride and shame, so getting help for that stuff is tricky. Uh, they fear submitting to Jesus and often debate if life in his kingdom is worth it. They struggle with feeling defeated by the endless cycle of trying to be a quote-unquote good person. Also, um, they're easily deceived. They don't have a lot of, like, theological information to work with. They don't, have a, they don't have a biblical worldview. And so a lot of other worldviews can get handed to them. and They can be tricked pretty easily into believing stuff that actually contradicts Scripture. Um, and, and the last thing is, uh, in terms of community, they view churches existing for them. They're incredibly consumeristic. So they're like a kid. Again, that's not bad, right? For infants, it's like, feed me, feed me, feed me, right? Um, I, I was somewhere recently, and some kid said, I went boo-boo again. Um, kid was psyched. He wanted help. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and so, yeah, he, right? That's appropriate for an infant. The family exists to bring the infant to maturity. D- does that make sense? Now, again, rough if you're 18, you're like, I went boo-boo again, right? Like, not mature. Again, barring, like, something tragic, uh, that's not normal development, Right? Common behaviors, um, uh, so, so sorry, they'll view the community, so they go, ah, oh, what, like, what, what I got out of the sermon is the most important thing. My favorite, what they got out of worship, <laughs> which is for God, just so you guys know, um, right? The group, it, what did I get out of the group? Um, which, by the way, is fine for a baby. They're, they're receiving primarily. Um, next steps for growth, uh, be baptized, commit to following Jesus uh, in every area in their life. Uh, commit to that, not that they're doing it. Um, uh, matter of fact, one of the books I was reading this week, the Bill Hull book, it said that uh, the most important moment for a disciple isn't like putting a bunch of effort into grow. It's consenting to the fact that you're not your own in the first place. Like making the decision, my life's not my own anymore. I'm following him. Um, another next step for growth, read the New Testament. Uh, and I'll send these out, by the way, too. Uh, the second one, spiritual child, spiritual child. Um, this is a younger, more self-absorbed disciple. Uh, they're more self-absorbed than where they're going to go, uh, but less self-absorbed than an infant. Um, and they're beginning to enjoy and obey Jesus. They've been baptized. They've received forgiveness for their sins. They've been filled with the Holy Spirit, but it's early days. A common belief, they believe God truly loves them and has a purpose for their life. Uh, they're hungry to learn, grow, and be connected to community. Uh, they're beginning to grow and allowing the scriptures to define reality. Um, they're experiencing spiritual warfare, but they're not always aware of what that is. Um, they're repenting of all their, they're really trying to repent of external sins. So stuff they do on the outside that's obvious, they're like about it, right? They might even have some legalism in there early. They're like, I'm getting, re- I'm, right? I, I don't even know what you would do anymore. Back in the day, be like, like burn their CDs. I don't know if like, delete your download, delete your streaming services. I don't know. No more rock and roll. But on a serious note, the things that remind them of their old sinful life, they, go, they, they feel like, man, I can't be around that. I don't want to be around that. Um, they, too, view church as primarily existing for them. That they might be serving in kind of a, an early, kind of a, a non-spiritual leadership role. Um, uh, they're probably doing that. Uh, common behaviors is the, this, this stage often wants to tell people about Jesus because it's fresh and they're experiencing his love and it's blowing their minds. Like, this is definitely the most excited person, uh, externally excited. Um, 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 uh, common behaviors, uh, yeah, they're, they're telling people about Jesus. Um, they're also pretty defensive when lovingly confronted about sin, uh, right? Again, because, again, their identity isn't, isn't super um, rooted in who Jesus is yet. 
Um, they've begun to enjoy serving others. Uh, they struggle. Uh, w- when they serve, they struggle with desiring personal benefits or applause from others. Um, and the next steps for growth uh, would be learning to spend daily time with Jesus in prayer, scripture meditation, worship, um, building deep relationship with Christians in the church family. Uh, so having a, moving to having a few friends who follow Jesus, um, who can speak into their life. Um, and, they're, and they're authentic, like they're opening themselves up, um, even though it's a little scary. Um, and they're starting to give uh, small financial amounts to advance the kingdom of God, both to the church and those in need. Um, so those are some next steps. Uh, the ne- uh, second to last one is spiritual young adults, uh, which, by the way, I think a lot of our church is in this phase. Uh, in the Jeff Vandersalt book, one of the things that was helpful, or he just said, it's very common in churches to basically have spiritual adults who are like spiritual leaders, like pastors and stuff. That's how they're viewed. Um, and then there's like spiritual children and, and people go, I don't have much to offer. But, but this idea of like an older brother, older sister is a pretty big one. Uh, and I think there's a lot to offer in this stage. Uh, it says the spiritual young adult description is consistently reflecting Jesus' love to people. Uh, while they continue to put sin to death, they're focusing on putting on the new self and being transformed into his image. And so one way to look at it is um, they still are getting rid of vice, but they really want to become people of virtue. Does that make sense? They don't want to just not hate people. They want to, like, love their enemies, not just hate their, not just hate their enemies less or, or feel neutral. Um, uh, they they, they want to not just put lust to death. They want to learn how to value uh, embodied people and see them as human beings who shouldn't be objectified, who are worthy of love, dignity, and respect, if that makes sense. Uh, common beliefs and experiences. They believe God's love is their greatest source of joy. Uh, they hunger for God, but are easily distracted by doing things for him rather than being with him. Uh, this is the stage where people serve a lot. They're doing a lot of stuff, and God feels distant. Um, they tend to have a pretty healthy self-awareness, and they're humbly inviting people to speak in. Like they, It's hard to hear, but they, they want to hear it. Um, they're probably growing in relational health and working through, um, if, if need be, you know, uh, trauma stuff, family of origin stuff, stuff that's keeping them from putting on the virtue, stuff that's keeping them from going where they want to go. And they repent not only of external sin, but, but sinful motivations. Uh, common behaviors, uh, they serve others even when it's costly. Uh, they view the church as something that they receive from and give to. Um, uh, they view their sexuality as a gift. Um, they hear the Spirit's voice more clearly and obey his leading when comfortable. Uh, they practice fasting, uh, all kinds of things. Um, they give sacrificially. They're, they're consistently giving like a tithe of 10% or, or something in that arena. And the next steps and areas for growth um, would be actually investing in someone younger than you in the faith. So actually discipling someone would be a next step. Sharing what you know. Again, you don't need to be perfect. You just need to be a few steps ahead. Um, reading through the entire Bible uh, can be a really, really good, a challenging thing, but a good thing. Um, they're learning to limit false messages that come into their lives. They, they've intentionally limited things like social media, for example. Um, uh, not because they have to, because they, they're, they're, again, they're consistently going, what can help me become more like Jesus? Not just take, cutting out what's bad for me, if that makes sense. And then last but not least is the spiritual mother and father. The spiritual mother or father. Uh, a spiritual mother and father, uh, a spiritual mother or father, spiritual parent is consistently abiding in Jesus' love and multiplying healthy beginning, uh, healthy um, spiritual uh, children and spiritual, um, spiritual infants and spiritual children. Um, they walk with the Spirit and see His fruit consistently through their life, relationships, and ministry. Um, common experiences and beliefs. Um, a couple different ones that are pretty incredible. Um, they're actually becoming like Jesus in discernible ways they can point to. Um, they feel deep peace, believing that the Father will take care of them. Their life is less and less marked by anxiety. Um, they don't take themselves too seriously um, because they know that they are deeply liked and loved by Jesus. So increasingly, when they walk into a room, they don't think, what does everyone think of me? They see everyone. D- does that make sense? Uh, again, they're, they're less... Um, uh, self-absorbed. It's not they don't care about themselves. It's like, I know I'm loved. I know I'm cared for. I know I'm going to be okay, which frees me up to see other people, not through the lens of how they relate to me, but just them as being valuable, beloved people. Um, um, people feel at ease in their presence. Like to be in their presence is to feel safe, is to feel seen. 
um, they're also pretty, they're bold and courageous. This is where you see just uh, Christian virtue being so distinct because they're bold and courageous and they're safe. They make you feel safe and seen and they're not afraid to, 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 to speak truth when necessary. Um, the common behaviors for this stage, they more easily discern God's will and witness God bringing freedom to people around them. Uh, they help other Christians, uh, again, learn how to pray, learn how to read the Bible, learn how to walk with God through suffering. Um, they're consistently a source of financial generosity to those in need and the local church. Like, they're not even really, percentages aren't really their thing. It's just, uh, I'm living a life of generosity as I'm able to. That's the numbers are different for different people's uh, means and all that stuff, but the heart and the desire is there. Uh, they, they want to help. Um, after they've prayed, they, they want to help. Uh, they lovingly uh, are able to confront others on sin uh, in, a, again, a gentle, direct way. Um, they're able to be in healthy relationships where they're not enmeshed and they're not detached. They're not codependent, they're not independent, but they can um, pour into people and are still humble enough to receive. And again, they're ongoingly, again, repenting of not just external sin, but, 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 but sinful motivations. Uh, it says, next steps for growth for this one. This is the last one. It says, um, strive to see those you have discipled, multiply healthy disciples themselves. Um, continually seeking the Spirit's guidance on what's next for you. Um, uh, this is a big one. Pursue, pursue humility and a servant's attitude in all of your leadership, no matter how influential or fruitful your ministry becomes. Um, don't forget where you came from. There's an um, a apostolic leader named John Wimber. He started the Vineyard Churches, and he used to say, um, don't forget who, <laughs> it's like a super southern twang. Uh, he would say, uh, don't forget who brung you to the dance. Uh, and it's like, Jesus is the only reason you're in this kingdom. Uh, don't forget that. Don't think like I'm the guru now. It's like, no, my greatest asset is I know Jesus. Uh, a, a mentor of mine, a guy that I, I look up to who's, who's very godly, he says that my most redeeming quality is that Jesus loves me and I love him. <laughs> I love that. And that's kind of how they approach uh, life. And so um, to move forward, we have to be honest about where we are. Um, does that make sense? And again, I would encourage you to really think through and pray through um, where, I'm, where am I at on this. I'm going to send an email out to, with, with these descriptions. Um, but even now, starting to pray through where am I at in my discipleship? It's the only way to move forward is to be honest about where you are, to consider where you need to go. And again, there'll be some um, not just descriptions, but practical things you can start doing to help you grow if that's you. Uh, the last thing I'll say about the stages, um, because I'm not good with slides, I wanted to add like a circle out here. Um, and we've talked about this in the past. There's this thing people have called like the dark night of the soul. Peter Scazzaro calls it the wall. The soul shepherding people call it something else. But it's this idea that in times of deep pain or trauma or transition, or fall, there'll be times where God will feel really distant even when you're doing the right stuff which is a big part of church history. And so these can last from six months to, I think Mother Teresa had like a 20-year one, okay? So um, they're big, but, but there are times where, um, I, I don't think they're mostly 20 years long. I also don't think most of us are doing what she did. So I'll just, there's a couple different categories there. Um, but just to say, there'll be times where you'll feel like you're not progressing, um, and you'll even feel like some of the behaviors from kind of your infancy stage are popping up, and that's important to pay attention to and slow down. Not beat yourself up but reach out for help. That's your big move in those stages to reach out for help. Uh, probably talk to a spiritual director, pastor, counselors, like start to, to go, hey, what's happening inside of me? That's derailed me. Does, it, does that make sense? Um, so that being said, I'm going to um, call the worship team up right now, wherever they are. And as um, we go into worship, and as we go into communion, um, I, I do want you to just consider um, where are you at in your discipleship to Jesus? Do you feel close to him? Do you want to be close to him? Are you obeying him? Do you want to obey him? Are you adopting his narratives about life? Are you stubbornly hanging on to the narratives you have? Like, where are you at in these areas? Um, and so, um, uh, right, I want to ask the spirit to bring to mind, um, A, where you are and what you need next. And that's the beauty of discipleship. It's not figuring it all out. It's one step at a time. Uh, this is the step that's needed. Last week, I knew I, I had a, a, a step of repentance I needed to do. I needed to share something with someone, and that was really hard, and that was what it was for them. This week's a different thing. Um, and so for you, I mean, it's usually one step at a time is the thing that moves you forward. Uh, does that make sense? And so, um, so asking God, where am I, and what step is next for me? Um.
King Jesus, I thank you that you came for us. And not just that you died for us and that you rose again, but you called us to yourself. Like you call us. You call all of us to drop our nets. And we all had different nets in our hands when you found us. And maybe we've never dropped our nets in today. Maybe for the first time we'll drop our nets. We've clung to what we think the good life is. We've clung to what we think is truer than what Jesus says. We've clung to the self-righteousness that keeps us from being vulnerable because we've been hurt in the past. But either way, they've kept us from following you. Jesus, thank you for calling us and help us to drop our nets, whether for the first time or that you'd call us afresh to, to, to realize, oh, I, I've gone back. <laughs> Think about that story with Peter when, when they go back to fishing <laughs> before he doesn't know Jesus is resurrected. They go back to fishing and, 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 and Jesus restores him. Now, for some of us, we might have gone back to familiar nets, nets of sin or unbelief, coping. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to drop those nets and follow you in a fresh way. Jesus, I ask that you would help us note our location. Like, here's where I am, and you know what? It's okay that I'm here. I'm not behind. I'm not behind schedule. I'm not ahead of schedule. I'm right where King Jesus has me for now. And Lord, I pray that you would, as you simultaneously remove the shame of being wherever they are, you'd take them by the hand to not just remove shame, but give them hope that they can be somewhere new. That progressing through Christian maturity isn't just an idea we have. You want it for us more than we want it for ourselves. Like a good parent, you want us to mature and grow up in the family, to take on the Father's likeness look like our older brother Jesus and so Lord would you help us name our stage and Holy Spirit would you give us next steps and right now as we go to the tables um, Father Son and Holy Spirit I pray that you would remind us of Jesus who not only called us to himself but he, but he died for us his body was broken his blood was shed he rose again in victory. And for those of us who do feel guilt or shame about where we're at on our journey, would you just remind us, Holy Spirit, that Jesus has taken our shame and our guilt. The Father loves us and like, uh, likes us, and he welcomes us to the table in spite of our sin in spite of our fear, in spite of our pride, in spite of our lust and our greed, our refusal to trust you. Because of Jesus' death, we're welcome to the table. And so as we take communion, would we feel safe being right where we are in our process, knowing that we're, we're loved and we're cleansed and we're not alone? In Jesus' name, amen. Hi, guys. Um, just in closing, uh, as Andy was sharing, I just felt a sense of just discipleship and being, actually being a disciple is hard work. Um, if you think about the kids, um, as Andy was describing, that are memorizing the Torah, it's, that's a lot of work that they're putting in. Um, and it just reminded me right now, I have Live at Home with me and Part of the type of education that we're doing is a classical education, which requires a lot of memorization. And she's decided that she wants to like, um, there's a, a title that you can get, it's called a mini master. It's where <laughs> you memorize one, <laughs> one subject of what we're learning. You memorize all of the information that we've learned. And so she decided to do history, which is, I'm very happy because I love history. But also, it's intense. There's 161 chronological history um, of facts that she has to memorize, and she is doing it, guys, and it's crazy. 
But the thing is, and it's so funny because I have to follow along like in the book to make sure she's doing it right because I don't even know everything, single thing in the order that it's supposed to be in. Um, but with this discipleship, with being a disciple in the kind of the same regard, like I see her day after day trying, attempting, um, doing repetition, failing, getting things out of order, and then attempting again. Um, so I just want to encourage us with being a disciple um, as we do it. Like we're going to have to put in a lot of repetition. We're going to need to put in a lot of repetition. We are going to fail, but we can get up and try again. And God is with us. He's gracious to us. Um, but he does want us to keep trying. So I'm just going to pray for us and uh, ask that God would meet you this week. Uh, Jesus, thank you so much for uh, what you're doing um, in our lives as individuals, um, not compared to anyone but you. Uh, you are growing us. You're changing us. You're shaping us. And I pray that we would uh, not compare ourselves to the person next to us, but we would um, be so in tune with you and the journey that you have us on. Um, grow us, God. Help us to... Um, Continue with repetition in being a disciple, doing the things that are good and beautiful, um, but also help us to experience your grace when we fail. And um, Holy Spirit, help us to continue on. Help us to continue to try again, even if we've embarrassed ourselves, even if we've got it completely wrong, even if we're um, in a complete different uh, state than we're supposed to be in. I pray that you would help us uh, to begin again with your grace and your love. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, guys, have a good week.